just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's good to be with all of you on this Sunday before Christmas. My uh, family has already uh, traveled to Houston. That's where we uh, yearly spend Christmas with Olivia's family. So I'm following this afternoon, but I'm uh, very thankful to be with you, uh, our, my church family, uh, to celebrate on this Sunday before uh, Christmas Day. A few years ago, the New York Times ran an ad that said the following, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. Now, this is the kind of theme and message that we hear at Christmas. And I think it's legitimate for us to ask, how? (laughs) How is this to happen And does the how matter? In other words, is the point that we should all be hopeful and believe that unity and peace is our ultimate destination? Or does it matter how we get to that place of unity and peace? For Christians, the how makes all the difference. And even though we might proclaim such optimistic messages like a world of unity and peace, all around us we look around and we see the opposite. The United States currently is facing a government that is anything but unified. We have a partial shutdown over the holidays, uh, over disagreements on the budget and what to, how to spend the money. Um, It isn't only our government that's had to deal with disagreements and frustrations when it came to building the tunnel under the English Channel, uh, connecting England with France many, many years ago. There was two giant firms built from scratch to complete the project. One firm was charged with the financing of the project, the other charged with the operations And each of the companies were equally headed by French and British companies. No one was allowed to take charge. Leadership uh, was reduced to management conflict throughout the project. One of the executives charged with completing the tunnel said that the project created a lot of tension because it was not geared to solving problems. It was geared to uh, to placing blame. Uh, The English yelled at the French, the French yelled at the English, and the problem was they didn't have a shared uh, view of what the standards were to be. They didn't have a clear how that they were unified on. The two countries had different words for everything. The French had a different accounting system, uh, different from the English. Um, The French ran on 380 volts, the British ran on 420 volts, the instruction manuals were bilingual, there were different standards used to measure sea level. It was a very frustrating uh, process to build this channel, and one of the engineers summarized it this way, when you have people coming from two different nations, each believes 
that only their regulations are right. And it's very hard to be unified when you don't have that clear agreement on what the standard should be, on how to accomplish what you want to accomplish. Unity really is a precious gift. It requires something outside of us to unite us. It doesn't come naturally because we as human beings, we gravitate towards chaos. We gravitate towards dividedness. It's part of our fallen nature. And this time of year, we may proclaim these optimistic ideas about unity and peace. uh, But it's important for us to acknowledge how rare it is to experience it in real life. Uh, Sometimes I feel like our condition is similar to uh, the plumber who, uh, standing in front of Niagara Falls, I have a a slide here of Niagara Falls, Uh, the plumber standing in front of Niagara Falls who says, just give me a minute, I'll fix it. That's how we often are with our human condition. We think, oh, no, no, we got it. We can handle it. And and the harsh reality is we can't. We can't. And part of the Christmas message is that very harsh truth. And that's why unity and peace, that's why the how is so important. How it's going to happen makes all the difference. Now, we get glimpses of unity. We get glimpses of peace in our daily lives. Even this last political cycle that was so contentious. In Vermont, there were two candidates fighting for a a Senate House seat. Uh, Lucy Rogers was the Democrat, and Zach Mayo, the Republican. And they had a local debate. It was held at the local library. And the two candidates decided that at the end of their debate, uh, Lucy grabbed her cello, Zach grabbed his guitar, and they started to sing Eddie Vedder's song, Society. And it surprised and shocked everybody. Uh, Rogers and Mayo had agreed while campaigning that they were going to be civil and treat with each other with respect throughout the race. And one of the television commentators uh, who's reporting on this incident said, here we have a Republican and a Democrat united in perfect harmony. And all the people present were very encouraged by it. And one, one voter said, you know, it gave me a lot of hope. It gave me a, a, a vision of what could be. Now, we get glimpses of this in the church even. Now, the church is often seen as a very divided organism and institution. The church is where a lot of conflict happens. But uh, we had a taste of it this past week. I have a photo from Tuesday. Parkcrest invited all all the churches and and some Christian organizations, some leaders, to come uh, for lunch to have tacos at their church. And it was a great gathering. Our staff came. I don't know if you can tell where we are, uh, but we're in that photo. Our church staff went and we got to meet other Christians and and pastors and and leaders. And it was a great um, glimpse of unity that we will have one day as God's people. Uh, And Paul here is writing about unity in our passage in Ephesians. We talked last week a little bit about it. And and in verse 3, we saw last week where Paul's urging us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And here in our passage this morning, in verses 4 to 6, Paul doesn't rely on music and he doesn't rely on tacos to 
urge us and compel us to move towards unity, Paul uses theology. Theology. Now that's fascinating because many American evangelical Christians, we often blame theology for all our our fighting. Uh, We point to the thousand denominations, the many non-denominational churches, and we think to ourselves, well, theology's the problem. Well, theology is not the problem. Paul believed theology was the very thing that should hold us together. And that's what Paul points us towards in our passage this morning, especially as we move towards Christmas. The theology behind the Christmas story is what's so incredible and what should draw us and unite us. We look here in our passage, Paul talks about seven ones that should unite us. Seven ones, he uses this this phrase seven times. He says, we are one body, he refers to one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father. And this repeated use of one drives home his central theme of unity and peace. He's stressing this, this, this idea of our calling to be one. And it reminds us of Jesus' prayer. If you remember in the Gospel of John, Jesus' prayer before he was arrested and executed, he prays four times for his followers to be one. And so this was the heart of Jesus. It was the heart of Paul. And it should be our heart as God's people today. And so let's look at these three verses and see briefly what Paul has to show us about the theology behind our unity and our calling to be one. Here in verse 4, I'll call this the first triad. We'll look at these together. The one body and one spirit and one hope that belongs to our call. Uh, This triad It progresses from this idea of one body, which if you're familiar and remember what Paul talked about earlier on in the letter, he talked about Jew and Gentile being one body. Paul there is talking about how Jesus has brought together a visible church, a visible body of different people from different nations, bringing them together to be one. And so we see this united physical reality Bonded together by this spiritual reality of the Holy Spirit. That each of us as followers of Christ have the Spirit of God within us and that unites us. So we have a physical reality founded on the spiritual reality that leads to a future reality. Our one hope. Here Paul's referring to the inheritance that we have God's future plan to the future hope, the future restoration that he will complete at the end of time. And so Paul wants us to see that our view of the future should create and bond us today in the present. This one hope of cosmic harmony and unity that we can anticipate here at Christmas time, as we reflect on Christ's coming in the past, we also look forward to his coming in the future. We think of Isaiah 11 and that prophetic 
Those prophetic words where it tells us the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. There we have this image of Christ and how Jesus will bring these warring factions described here as animals that have no business being together. Jesus is the one who will bring them together And that is the future destiny and hope that all of us today as followers of Christ have. And so what Paul is showing us here is that as Christians, the theology that unites us is the story that we believe in and profess. And that story is the story of the Bible. It's the story of creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. And I want to show you three, three pictures here that kind of encapsulate the story so that you can get a visual to understand what Paul's talking about here. The first visual tells us the story of creation. You see the picture here of the earth, of God creating the earth. You see the fall symbolized as as clouds and a storm. We see the, the destruction that happened through the fall, sin entering into the world, but then we see redemption symbolized through the cross and the thorn, the crown of thorns, Christ's work on the cross. And then restoration is the end of the story, our future hope, when the earth will be restored and there it symbolized Jesus as king with the crown. That encapsulates the story of hope that we believe as Christians, that unites us. Now, another way we could express it, here's another image that describes the story. Here we have the earth referring to creation, but then the fall here in this story is symbolized through the core, the apple that's been eaten. And then we see redemption in the cross, and finally restoration symbolized in the trumpet when Christ will come again. And one more, just to show you the different ways we could articulate this story of hope This third one, we see the tree, and we see the the fruit there. And then the fall, the tree there is stripped of all its leaves. Redemption shows us the tree begins to bloom. That's the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. It's the beginning, and it's the already not yet. It's this anticipation we live in, we long for, that final frame where the tree is in full bloom and God will restore his creation, and it's going to be even better than the original creation. You see, Paul, in this one verse, is telling us that that's the story that we as Christians believe and adopt, and it unites us. We believe a common story. We believe a common hope. Now, as Paul goes to verse 5, he goes on to say, one Lord one faith, one baptism. And what's interesting about this verse is most likely, most scholars believe that here Paul is referencing a baptismal confession that in the early church, when you came to faith in Christ and wanted to uh, become a follower of Christ, you would have been baptized as a symbol of your entrance into the covenant community and you would have affirmed one Lord in one faith. You would have been baptized and confessed and believed that truth, that theology. Now, what's interesting about what Paul says here is that term Lord 
is the Greek word kurios, which in the Greek Septuagint, which was the Old Testament translation of the Hebrew uh, uh, books, that's the word that was used for Yahweh. Now, this was Paul's, one of Paul's favorite terms for Jesus. Paul often referred to Jesus as Lord. And so notice what Paul is doing here. Paul is saying the thing that you, one of the things that unites us as Christians is we believe Jesus was God in the flesh incarnate. We believe Jesus was Yahweh was God of the Old Testament. That God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that it is in this Lord that salvation rests and God completes his plan of redemption. Now think about it, for a Jew, and remember the early church was composed of all Jews, for a Jew to profess Jesus as Lord would have been an incredible miracle in many ways because a Jew would have grown up every day confessing the Shema, which was from Deuteronomy, which said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So for a Jewish believer to enter into the church, to be baptized, and to confess Jesus as Lord would be to turn your back on everything you had been raised with, to turn your back on your family, to turn your back on what was the accepted norm for a Jew to believe. And Paul is saying, this truth of Jesus being God in flesh is one of the essential beliefs that unite us as Christians. What Paul is saying is that you are not, as a Christian, you are no longer united with your ethnic Jewish brothers and sisters. You are now united to, whether Jew or Gentile, your brothers and sisters who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. And today, what we can say is that means, as Christians, we are not united with those who profess to be Mormons. Mormons do not believe in the Trinity. Mormons do not profess Jesus as Lord in the sense that we as Christians do. Jehovah's Witnesses, we are not united with Jehovah's Witnesses. They do not make this profession, this confession. And therefore, according to Paul, we are not united with them. And we could list many groups Many groups full of very good people, very religious people, who do not confess Jesus as Lord. And friends, that means, according to Paul, we are not united with them as one body because they do not confess that same belief in the triune God. Uh, one writer, one commentator put it this way, many people want to promote visible unity at the expense of the truth. But it should be evident that if individuals cannot agree on the basics of the truth, they are not united in any meaningful sense. Unity at the expense of truth is a foundationalist unity, but it does not mean the pursuit of unity, even visible unity, is in itself sinful. We should be seeking unity that does not compromise the gospel. That it is what Jesus prayed for.
So this was a, a very important point for Paul and something we need to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of the people who are coming to faith in the early church. If you were a Jew becoming a follower of Jesus, recognizing Jesus as Messiah, you were acknowledging that Jesus of Nazareth was more than a man, more than a prophet, more than an angel. He was, in fact, God in the flesh. And if you were a Gentile, especially in Ephesus, you would be turning your back on the worship of Artemis. Artemis was the goddess of Ephesus, Diana. There was a temple in Ephesus that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Many professed Artemis as Lord. And what Paul is doing here, he's saying if you were to be a follower of Christ, if you were to be, be a part of the body and be united with the followers of Jesus, that means you would no longer worship Artemis. You would no longer uh, dabble in spirits and magic. You would no longer visit local shamans or uh, look to them for spiritual help or insight. You would turn your back, renounce those things, and confess the one true God and follow him alone. And so it was a very important theological step for people to take, just as it is today. It's important for you and for me to acknowledge that we cannot be wishy-washy on this. We have to take that stand and say, this is what we believe. We believe in the triune God, and that is what unites us. It unites us with our Catholic brothers and sisters. It unites us with our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters. That's one of the, the powerful um, expressions of the Apostles' Creed. It's one of the creeds that, that expresses the essentials of the Christian faith. What makes us united as the, the Catholic, lowercase c, the Catholic Church, the universal church, is our essential beliefs that make us one. And Paul expressed it in 1 Corinthians this way, and there's allusions to what he's saying here in, in Ephesians. But in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul puts it this way, for although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom we are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And of course, that makes us think of verse 6 here, where Paul says, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so these core ideas are so essential for our common unity and common beliefs as the body of Christ. And in a day and age when it's popular to express, a, I think, a false humility to say, hey, whatever you believe about God is cool, as long as it works for you. And certainly we should respect people and allow people to believe what they're going to believe. But as followers of Christ, we have to say, no, it matters. Our theology matters. It, it makes a difference. It makes a difference what you believe about God. Because all of our beliefs about God are different. And either somebody's tr right <laughs> or everybody's wrong. It can't be that everybody's right. And even when we, we think about the Christmas story and this Christmas message that we're celebrating here this morning, 
We have a hope. We, we're optimistic. And why are you optimistic? How are you optimistic? And it may be you don't know. You might say, well, I just believe because I believe it's going to work out. And I don't really know how, but I just believe in human beings. And I believe that if we can somehow get our act together, it will all turn out okay. That might be your belief this morning, but let me suggest that there's a better story for you to believe in. There's a better hope offered to you today, and that's the story of what God is doing, and that's the story of what Jesus has accomplished. And Tim Keller puts it well, I think, when he says, Christianity does not agree with the optimistic thinkers who say we can fix things if we try hard enough. Nor does it agree with the pessimists who see only a dystopian future. The message of Christianity is instead, things really are this bad, and we can't heal or save ourselves. Things really are this dark. Nevertheless, there's hope. And there's hope because of what Jesus has done. There's hope because of what Jesus has accomplished, and that hope is available for you. It's available for all of us. If we only confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts of what he has accomplished for us and what he will do one day. And what Paul wants us to see is that belief should should lead to life change and to actions. I like how Ann Voskamp put it. I know the theological answers but do my blood and my pulse. (laughs) I know the theological answers, but do my blood and my pulse. In other words, does your theology drip into your very being and does it begin to shape the choices that you make and the way that you live your life? And what Paul wants us to see this morning It's that this rich theology that we believe, these rich truths of the gospel and the Christmas story matter, and they unite us. And what I would like to do in closing this morning is for us to take a moment and reflect on a poem. Why a poem? Because I believe one of the beautiful things about poetry is poetry can take very rich theology and put flesh on it. It can take rich theology and emotions and affections and blend them together in a very powerful way that often prose cannot. And so I would invite us to take a moment and reflect on this poem that I'm going to read and we'll have on the slides. It's a poem by Lucy Shaw. It's Uh, in a book accompanied by angels, Poems of the Incarnation, and it's Mary's song. So this is Mary written from her perspective. And I want you to just reflect. I'll I'll read it slowly here. As we reflect on the rich theology and, and notice how it's expressed, I think, in a very fresh way that I hope will inspire and challenge you as you enter in to this time of reflection and prayer before we take the offering. So let me read this to you slowly. Blue homespun in the bend of my breast. Keep warm this small, hot, naked star fallen to my arms. 
rest, you who have had so far to come. Now, nearness satisfies the beauty of God sweetly. Quiet he lies, whose vigor hurled a universe. He sleeps, whose eyelids have not closed before. His breath, so slight it seems no breath at all. Once ruffled the dark deeps to sprout a world. Charmed by doves' voices, the whisper of straw. He dreams, hearing no music from his other spheres. Breath, mouth, ears, eyes, he is curtailed who overflowed all skies, all years. Older than eternity, now he is new. Now native to earth as I am, nailed to my poor planet, caught that I might be free. Blind in my womb to know my darkness ended. Brought to this birth for me to be newborn and for him to see me mended, I must see him torn. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, may these truths that we confess this morning strike us to the core. As we reflect this Christmas of what it means, Emmanuel, God with us, amen.